0: Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. You're listening to Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk, TNT
1: Hello and welcome to Tuesday's Sonia Poulton show on today's News Talk TNT. I hope you are all fine, alive and kicking. It's only Tuesday, but let's pretend it's Friday. Why not? I just want to say hello to everyone in the chat on X, on Instagram, people writing to me. I appreciate hearing from you all. And great to hear on Dean Mackin's show that David Curtin is joining TNT. Woohoo! excellent stuff. First of all, I want to read out an email from Sally. Hello there, Sally. She says, congratulations on the show. I have never heard of joint enterprise before, but I wonder why this was not used in the Michael Barrymore, Stuart Lubbock story. Now that is very interesting. Obviously, we had Jan Cunliffe on the show on Friday talking about how uh, Joint Enterprise had swept up her innocent 15-year-old son into a murder trial and uh, found him imprisoned for over a decade. And that's really interesting because the the mysterious murder of Stuart Lubbock, who died in the pool of British celebrity Michael Barrymore over two decades ago, well, evidence shows that Stuart was very seriously brutalised before death. There were at least six people present and no one has ever been charged. So I think that's a really great Question, Sally. It is curious how they are able to round up, you know, young, often impoverished boys and uh, slap a murder uh, conviction on them. And yet, somehow, not celebrities and their mates. Oh, what a different world we live in, right? So, yesterday, actor and activist Lawrence Fox learned that he had lost his libel trial. Now, I I found this really interesting. Three people were involved. He had called them paedophiles on social media, but his counterclaim for them calling him a racist was thrown out. I read the judgment. It's a very considered judgment, um, which I happen to agree with. Um, There was no basis for him calling them paedophiles. And there was some basis in their honestly held beliefs, which is a defense in British defamation law, to call him a racist. And I quote from the judgment, Um, The judge, Mrs. Justice Collins Rice, says the law does not regard the particular imputations against Mr. Fox that that he was a racist made by Mr. Blake, Mr. Seymour or Miss Thorpe as defamatory. However, and this is important, there has not been a trial to determine whether he is or is not. And so people should be very careful about calling him a, a racist because He does seem to have a flow of cash these days to deal with such legalities. And Fox, as expected, took the ruling very badly and within hours was back on X, defaming one of the people that he had lost to. He says he will appeal the ruling, but good luck with that. His behavior since his first tweets um that that in regard to this court case back in twenty twenty have revealed a man who is more than happy to do such things as blackface and include his teen sons doing the same. He comes from a huge acting dynasty. He himself was an actor, and Fox sought to blame these three people from his fall to grace. but honestly, this is nonsense. He needs to look closer to home at his own behavior and see why people may not want to put him in their productions. He claims to be all about freedom of speech, but he sues people for calling him names. The fact is, he called gay men paedophiles, and that's a bigoted old trope. And the judgment makes clear that after sort of 2020, Fox's life took a new direction, and he became increasingly angry about this sort of, you know, woke agenda, some of which I agree with him, to be honest with you. Um, but the judge ma- makes absolutely clear that when it comes to British law and defamation, you need to have clean hands, right? You need to be sure that you have a reputation that will be lowered in the eyes of others. And the judge did not find that, and that's why she dismissed his counterclaim. And just before we go to Gemma Cooper, I note that disposable vapes are to be banned in the UK as part of a drive to curb youth vaping. Well, that is what what is it they say? Bolting the 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 stable door after the horses bolted. About nine years ago, manufacturers began a deeply aggressive drive to normalize vaping and and sold it to children. It, one of the largest youth groups apparently vaping is twelve year olds. Beggars belief. The manufacturers knew what they were doing. Cigarettes were falling out of favor, and industry needed to sort of vamp up its look and keep smoking going. They made vapes trendy. They created sweet and fruity flavours in bright, eye-catching packaging. And now they're going to roll back on all that and put it in plain packaging. I had a big debate on the Alan Titchmarsh show. You may or may not know that. That's, that was on British TV. And that was about... Seven years ago, where I talked about how there was formaldehyde in um, these e-cigarettes, and Joan Collins, the actress, was on the show at, at the time, and she was like, "Well, everything make everything can make you sick, including paracetamol." And uh, but you know, Joan, I hate to say, I told you so. The studies now are coming out about vaping. It categorically shows that there is no such thing as an alternative, healthy way to smoke. You do it at your own risk. I make no judgment on that, but it is what it is. And on that note, we will take a short break and we will be back with Gemma.
0: Keeping the commitment 24-7. Right. I come to you for facts. fact. I really appreciate what you and your team do. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: And I'm here with Gemma Cooper this morning. Lovely to see you, Gemma. How are you?
2: Yeah, yes. Yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you, Sonia. All guns blazing here at TNT, the UK breakfast arm of the TNT team. And it is a wonderful announcement about David Curtin uh, joining us. He'll be on later in the day. You know, just a fantastic roster of people right across the globe that we now have here at TNT. Yeah,
1: really strong team. I, I'm really excited about that. And, and I've interviewed David a number of times and he was on with us last week when we were in for Abbey. Um, and uh, David is just a really straight talker and I really respect that. And many times I've said, I don't agree with what your party stands for. I don't agree. I don't d- 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 agree with this. I, but I just respect people who are prepared to stand up for what they believe in, Gemma. It's so refreshing in our society, especially amongst politicians. So yeah, great
2: addition. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm just uh, curious about the Elon Musk story that Matt Boyland uh, touched on there in the News Roundup because, yeah, he did announce that, uh, uh, you know, effectively in the early hours of this morning or just late last night, UK time. But there's so much more to this story about, you know, implanting brain chips into humans than uh, than, than meets the eye in the headlines. Uh, So Neuralink has announced, you know, one of Musk's companies. I mean, Musk divides opinion, doesn't he? Much like Lawrence Fox. So you were just talking about he divides opinion. Musk divides opinion, especially within the you know so-called freedom movement. There is a huge debate about Elon Musk. But Neuralink, one of his companies, has successfully implanted the first chip into the human brain, and the goal ostensibly is, is a good one. You know, on the face of it, the headlines are that the the, the goal of this is to connect human beings to computers to interface with them um, to help neurological conditions like paralysis, blindness, schizophrenia, uh, and, and depression, you know, and uh, who could argue with that? You know, if you've been suffering from depression nearly all your life, and a, and a brain chip can ostensibly help with that, would you give it a go? You probably would. Now, it got the green light to um, trial this on human subjects by the FDA back in May. So, obviously, humans have been, you know, lining up to have this thing implanted in their brains. Uh, and it's a six-year study now uh, of, of how this will Work. Um, so basically, a robot will cut you. Well, you'll be cut open, and a robot will um, surgically place these very fine th- threads, th- finer than human hair, um, and they will connect to this chip. And then the chip will interface remotely with your computer, your phone, your tablet, and your device. And it will decode what you intend to do if you intend to move or how you're thinking. And the and the game, the game of this really, I've got a game. The goal is to um, Enable you to take control of your device remotely from wherever you are, and have a relationship with it just by thought. Now the product is going to be called telepathy, uh, and you will control your own device. Now the thing is, of course, much like the experimental mRNA, there's no, no, not even long-term data, short-term data. There's no data on 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 this and how it's going to work, let alone the kind of ethical uh, uh, arguments about you know implanting chips into human brains to cause To 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 cure conditions, which otherwise you know you would argue that that schizophrenia is something you you, you've got, and you you know how much interference with human health will we go? Um, Also, what's really interesting is like this has caused a lot of controversy and a lot of headlines and a lot of reaction this morning. But he's not the first person or first company to do this. In fact, this has been going on for quite a while. Um, The first company, one of the first companies to implant a brain-computer interface. Uh, into someone's brain was a, a, a company based in America, in Utah, and they did it in 2004. And I wonder if you'd like to know the name of the company that did this. They're called BlackRock Neurotech, and they've been doing this for for 20 years. We haven't had so much in the headlines about BlackRock Neurotech. Elon Musk is garnering all the headlines globally for doing this, but this has been going behind the scenes for a long, long time. And of course, within maybe the TNT listeners, TNT audience, is is the whole kind of transhumanist aspect of this, the merging of of humans with computers, the relationship with humans and computers. In fact, me and Dean Mackin were talking about this at the top of the last hour on his show because of the relationship we now have with online shopping and it's putting retailers out of business because we have such an intimate relationship with our devices already, let alone without the chip. Uh, that this seems to be exactly where society is heading. Now, I know that a lot of people will think and say this is a good thing, and a lot of people won't. You know, the fact is it's happening and has been happening for quite some considerable time. And if BlackRock Neurotech uh, were willing to announce in 2004 that they were doing this publicly, how much of it has been going on behind the scenes in the world of science and tech? And brain technology that we just don't know about. So it's an interesting one today because you know, obviously Neuralink, Elon Musk, headlines everywhere. Uh, but this is this is not a new thing. And where it where it goes now with this six year study with humans, you know, this would be where the data comes out. Um, and it's all very well to say, well, you know, you'll be having the relationship with the computer. You'll be telling the computer what to do. What if the computer tells you what to do? Where's the flip side in this? Where's the checks and balances? And so I think we'll be covering this story a lot more on TNT over the next few years. This story makes me shiver, Gemma. It, It genuinely does. And I'm sure it has the same sort of
1: visceral impact on a lot of people because it sounds completely entirely unnatural, which of course it is. And, you know, as you say, it's kind of being sold to us that this can help with all manner of sort of neurological issues or depression. And that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? But what about controlling us, as you suggest? And that, and I think that's the thing that concerns many people. And I, I thought about this and the, the history of microchipping has been a very interesting one. And I knew from the moment that we started microchipping animals, we were only a, a leap and a step away from it being normalized for us to microchip human beings. There was a Swedish company at the start of the 2000s who were microchipping their, um, the workforce to be able to get into the canteen. And so that was obviously some sort of run. Probably, it wouldn't even surprise me if BlackRock were involved, Gemma. The minute you said that, I was like, well, of course they were, you know? And it's like, it's always the same players, isn't it? But Elon Musk has also been busy telling us how dangerous, you know, the issue of AI is and anything like this. And yet he seems to be at the forefront do you think he's just often used as scapegoat isn't necessarily the right word but you know what I mean it's like oh Elon's had this idea again as you say a character who divides opinion do we trust him do we not where do you stand on the Elon Musk uh, scenario Gemma do you trust him
2: I take a step back. Um, I mean, just the, the example there that you illustrated. On the one hand, he's warning about the dangers of AI, On the other hand, he's implanting uh, uh, chips in the brain that, inter- that interface with AI. Now, that to me looks like gaslighting. You see, <clears throat> you, you're saying one thing and then you're saying another. So you're, you're like, well, what, what do we? What, what's his position? What do we think about this? Because he's got a huge amount of influence. Allegedly, the richest man in the world can do what he likes. Um, so you're like, you're never really sure. What's he doing? What's he up to? That's classic narcissism. Classic gaslighting. Um so I, I, I take really no position on, on on him because I don't believe either way. Is he really in control of what he's saying, or is he being told to do these things to put us into kind of a state of like, well, I think it's good because he said it, I think it's bad because he said it, and all the while they're just getting on with what they want to get on with. Um, I, I really take no position because I think if he was a really powerful person, you probably wouldn't see him. I think the real power in our society lies way behind the scenes. That's my personal opinion, um, I, you know, I can't back that up, but I kind of think there's, they're all kind of players, aren't they, on the global stage, always out on, on X, on Twitter, making statements, you know, politicians as well. They're they're, they're kind of distraction techniques, in my opinion. The real work is going on behind the scenes. I didn't know that BlackRock Neurotech have been putting chips into human brains since 2004. I do now. Why? Because they didn't tell anybody. They just got on with it they got on with it and their secret experiments and secret secret you know chipping um, that's my take on it anyway but it's certainly you know this is a headline generator um and it will change you know if this is successful it will change the face of medicine and science forever and we will be merging mm. even further with technology that is without a doubt Oh, I mean, I completely agree with you. It's like,
1: which way to turn? He says this, he says that. But the other thing that's come to mind is after the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, arguably the world's most famous missing child in 2007, British scientists were working on a microchip for children because there was such a concern about not allowing your children to be out of your sight that that this was put forward. And actually, there was such a backlash that they pulled back from it. So you're absolutely right. That completely corresponds with what you're saying is about keeping things quiet rather than put it out there until it's fully developed. Gemma, thank you so much. This is a fascinating story, even though I find it deeply unnerving and sinister, but it is what it is. And as you say, it's here and uh, we, we shouldn't pretend it is. isn't. everybody, this is Gemma Cooper, and we will be back shortly.
0: TNT's for Voye Morich. He details
3: factually how Russia is rolling out the algorithm ghetto um you know the 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 multipolar edition of the algorithm ghetto a prototype of a traffic light that records traffic violations by a pedestrian at a crossing was tested in moscow so russians now they'll they'll have a the government will take a snapshot of their face and then run that through the databases to figure out who is who and then find them uh i suppose uh and then you know he, he points out that there are a lot of developments now moscow 2030 it's, it's uh, they want to make uh, Moscow achieve smart city status. Uh, and there's just, you know, y- you look at the white papers, Moscow and Russia are all in on Agenda 2030,
0: smart cities, algorithm ghetto, digital IDs. For Voye Morich on today's News Talk TNT.
4: God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one.
0: China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home, that's 40... California
4: has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a $1,000 a day fine.
0: Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task
3: force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence.
4: mortality rate from the virus was 0.2% you know, 99.8% survival, rather than the three or 4% mortality that the that people are saying at the time. The
0: culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor God.
5: <laughs> Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church.
4: The hypocrisy of letting people riot, helped us all understand one thing, this is not what they say it is.
3: By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction
4: here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison.
0: The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. Yay!
4: My Daddy.
0: When the churches fall
5: silent, the only religion left is the state.
0: We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God.
5: LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur
3: with jail time and arrest.
0: We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down.
2: We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and
4: safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt. Snitches get Rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase.
3: And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing
0: standing is going to be the church.
4: It sounds pretty good. good. It sounds real, dude. Not bad, huh?
0: This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Ivor Cummings, the fat emperor. This man is brilliant. He is a technical manager, biochemical engineer. He's a complex problem solving specialist and many other things. He manages to simplify things which have been made, I think, deliberately difficult. Welcome, Ivor. Lovely to have you on the Sonia Poulton Show. How are you doing today?
4: Oh, great, Sonia. Delighted to be here.
1: Well, we are delighted to have you. I want to go straight in on a study that was just announced, I think it was yesterday, a team of scientists from the University of Milan, and it is about the rise of bowel cancer in young people. They say it may rise up to 40% after being driven by um, a rise in obesity and alcohol consumption. When you read that, what were your thoughts? Do you tend to agree with with this, or is there something more going on about this rise?
4: Right. Well, the first thing is uh, that occurs to me is insulin resistance, and that sounds sciency, uh, or hyperinsulinemia. So when we eat too much sugary carbohydrates or too much vegetable oils, you know those heart healthy seed oils. Uh, We tend over a long period of time to drive up our blood glucose and go towards diabetes type 2. And that it also drives up our insulin and our insulin growth factor. Uh, So essentially, insulin and insulin resistance, this problem that's just an absolute epidemic in the world, in the Western world particularly, uh, it's just huge. 65% of over 45s in America, adults, are now pre-diabetic or diabetic. So it'll give you an idea, two-thirds of the adults over 45. And if you look up insulin resistance and colon cancer or breast cancer or endometrial cancer, the big killer cancers, you'll get tens of thousands of published papers. So the huge thing in cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and many other chronic diseases is this insulin resistance problem. So when they mention in that article, obesity and central obesity around the middle, which is insulin resistance, uh, they're correct. But when they go on to talk about alcohol and talk about fat and salt and all this stuff, they're incorrect because that, has, that's a side dish that really you don't even need to go there because I went through just now the big wheel in cancer.
1: Right, got you. And the thing is, is that you talk from experience. So you've basically been on a sort of decade long plus uh, research expedition where you've been looking at the sort of root of modern chronic diseases. And so I want to, first of all, refer to some of your own experience. You you did a talk recently in which you showed a picture of yourself and though you weren't obese, but you're certainly heavier than you are now. Absolutely. And uh, so you decided to embark on this journey yourself. You lost weight in nine weeks. You said it was dramatic, profound, all-encompassing because you were getting to the root cause of what was your problem. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So around 10 years ago, I was a complex problem-solving specialist. So I'd lead teams up to 100 engineers across the world on major problems, very subtle and complex, very costly. Uh, So I was in the right place and with the biochemical background, got blood tests, standard blood tests. Three of them were very high. I could see from the numbers, I was way outside the, the normal human range. And I went to another doctor because the first one couldn't give me my answers, and then to a professor of medicine. And I realized, well, they don't really know their own blood tests so i embarked on a journey of deep research in ResearchGate and pubmed i went straight to the databases to the real science and long story short after around three weeks of obsessive research i cracked it and it was insulin resistance that i mentioned at the start and i realized i was well on my way to type 2 diabetes and that the problem was carbohydrate healthy whole grains too much fruit all of that was what drove my liver problem and the fat was not a problem at all it's an ancestral homo sapiens natural food that we ate for millennia million years so i switched completely immediately to kind of meat fish and eggs and some vegetables that were low starch low sugar and that's what caused in the following nine weeks i lost um, i guess around 13 kilograms or 15 at, at one point around 30 pounds Uh, But I was really targeting the blood metrics that were really bad, and they all normalized. So it was very dramatic. Everyone in work was kind of stunned because the weight fell off me. And I began to give lectures to up to 100 people at a time, employees in the biggest room in the corporation. And uh, I went from there, and I never stopped. I have over 3,000 published papers in my archive now. And my business partner, Gabor Erdoshi in MetabolicDuo.com, he has over 13,000. He, he's just <laughs> the mecca.
1: It, it is absolutely phenomenal to listen to you both together. And obviously, we're going to pick up more after um, a brief break for some news headlines. But we will be right back with Ivor coming. Please do not miss this. It's a fascinating conversation.
0: We do have some big news. Listen up. Now, TNT Radio News. at Boyland with a look at your TNT headlines. The US Secretary of State has warned tensions in the Middle East
5: are at their highest in more than half a century.
0: Since at least 1973 and arguably uh, even uh, even before that.
5: France is witnessing a revolution as farmers revolt against ludicrous climate policies And tech billionaire Elon Musk has announced his Neuralink company has successfully implanted one of its brain chips into a human for the first time.
0: Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT Radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT Radio.
1: I'm here talking to Ivor Cummings, absolutely fascinating stuff. I'm learning so much about my body from Ivor as indeed are many people. Many people had asked me to bring you on Ivor. So it's absolutely wonderful to have you here in person. So you were talking about insulin resistance. And one of the things that you've said often in your talk is, is people don't talk about that. The experts don't talk about the issues attached to insulin resistance. So tell us how great are they?
4: Right, Sonia. Well, it's a huge part of modern chronic disease. So basically, you know, I go by the Pareto principle in problem solving or anything. You focus on the 20% uh, of what's available to focus on that actually addresses 80% of the problem. Uh, It's just a smart way to do things. So insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia or high blood insulin is such a huge part of modern chronic disease that it would be crazy to focus on other things, even though there are many other problems, like mineral and vitamin insufficiencies and autoimmune conditions. And they all drive disease. So that's kind of the kernel. And I have just seen on the screen here my talk from Skipton in the UK. And this is from Dr. Ron Rosedale. And you can't say it better. Hyperinsulinemia, high insulin, adversely affects almost all degenerative diseases that includes coronary artery disease, hypertension, cancer, stroke, diabetes, of course, obesity, autoimmune disorders and mental disease and decline. And they're now beginning to call Alzheimer's type three diabetes because it's being identified that it's insulin resistance in the neurological area versus in the body which is type two diabetes. So it's a huge kind of common soil hypothesis that's been studied for 50 years. Now, the interesting thing is, the doctors I spoke to in my journey 10 years ago, none of them were familiar with this at all. Even the professor who was multiply published uh, in geriatrics and, and chronic disease too. So it's just not really taught uh, clearly in medical school and i think it's still not really the focus is on cholesterol and stuff that quite frankly is off you know financial interest and there's huge industries are, around it
1: how bad is processed sugar and processed foods for us either
4: <laughs> yeah people often wonder well what happened in the 70s when suddenly all ages everywhere began to get obese and they think about e-numbers and additives and all this kind of other stuff but i would say it's quite simple i call it the devil's triad and that's sugar refined grains or refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils seed oils and that triad together is most of what makes up ultra processed foods which is most of the supermarket. and the reason is simple Uh, sugar and refined grains and vegetable oils are dirt cheap per kilogram They're just as cheap as chips, if you will. And the processed food industry and the food industry in general has just focused on those because they're very palatable kind of addictive mix and they're so cheap and they've got shelf life, amazing shelf life. So it's very, very simple in a way that's, what's driving them. They don't want to just kind of make everyone sick, uh, but that's just a side effect. So you've got these mega industries now. The food industry has co-opted nutritional universities, and they fund a lot of their activity, right? So nutritionists all get drawn in. And then big pharma, unfortunately, it benefits massively from the antihypertensives and the statins and all the drugs for chronic disease. So it also piles in funding and lobbying just to keep everything the way it is. Great market, sadly.
1: Absolutely, sadly, because obviously what happened was we stopped largely eating food and started eating food like products, didn't we? And, and that is the huge problem. Obviously, the leading causes of death, which you've highlighted before, heart attacks, stroke, cancer, kidney disease, um, Alzheimer's. And it, it's interesting because y- you say that they are sort of diabetic driven, but it's not called that, but they should be. Why Are we avoiding the diabetes word in attempting to understand these leading causes of death?
4: Yeah, well, it's it's commercially sensitive for the reasons I described. So the last thing anyone wants is people focusing on insulin too much. Because if you do focus on your blood insulin, you quite quickly found out what I found out. You find out what the bad foods are. If you get a glucometer and start measuring your glucose after you eat, you'll start finding out that all of these healthy whole grains you know, and stuff is not good. And you'll start finding out maybe which would be the worst, worst thing they'd fear, you'd find out if you just eat meat, fish, and eggs, you get beautiful blood glucose. So it's kind of a competitive threat to focus too much on it. There's another big political thing. Because 65% approximately of over 45s are now pre-diabetic or diabetic, that's a very embarrassing thing. How do you explain two-thirds of your population? If you measured insulin, you'd find a lot more diabetics we reckon in my medical network worldwide probably 75 percent plus of Americans over 45 are essentially diabetic so how do you deal with that because people will start asking if three quarters of us are essentially diabetic you know and it all blew up in the 70s and 80s people start looking and wanting answers so it's kept to the side like oh it's genetic oh diabetes oh here's a drug it it's all part of the business
1: it, it really is, isn't it? It is the business model. I think one of the interesting things I've heard you talk about was the moment that you realized you had your appetite under your control. And that's really key because obviously many people feel completely out of control with their food. I, I say oftentimes that dieting is an emotive issue rather than an issue of just losing weight. And I speak as somebody who had previously had food disorders when I was much younger and also managed finally to come to terms with things and get... Uh, my appetite under my control, but it's a long journey, isn't it? How, if somebody's starting on that path today, they're listening to you, they feel inspired by you and why ever not? Um, They're starting on that path today. Where where would you recommend people start to a good diet?
4: Right. Well, the simplest is the devil's triad. You've got to strive to just cut that out. Sugar, refined grains and vegetable oils. And the problem is if you don't buy vegetable oil or margarines, or margarines which are disgusting uh, that's not good enough because they put them hidden in all the ultra processed foods so you got to cut out all the ultra processed foods start reading labels uh, another way to simply view it is eat homo sapiens evolutionary foods real foods and real foods are meat fish and eggs which are nutrient dense and then the vegetables bring in minerals and stuff but not starchy potatoes and things, more broccoli and you know cauliflower and stuff like that. So real food. So that's at its simplest, but you're absolutely right, Sonia. In in our book, eat rich, live long, uh, which we brought out in 17, we had a whole chapter on the psychology of this problem. And one little tip is if people realize like myself, I was going after some very dangerous high blood measures, which uh, the actuaries use because they lead to early death Uh, but i found out my appetite came into control and i learned later why because of hormonal feedback loops but the key thing is when you do this it's not just a fad diet it's not a diet it's a lifestyle and you get so much it makes it really easy to adhere to. If you if you see the benefits and do it properly, you get mental acuity, you get sleep quality, you uh, completely mitigate symptoms of most modern chronic diseases or Crohn's disease or any of these things, and you lose weight. You look much better, but you you're more productive. You feel better. Very briefly in work, I was you know a Duracell bunny. Uh, A few weeks into this, I used to literally go in on coffee. I was skipping lunch. And in the mid afternoon, everyone else in meetings was kind of in the slump, the post food slump. And I'm just on fire Uh, to give another example. When I give talks in really big rooms, like up to 800 people, and I want to be at my best, I generally eat nothing for 24 hours beforehand. And I go on stage 24 hours fasted and I'm on fire. So you, you you tap into this lifestyle of true, you know, ancestral human vitality. And, and once you get in there and you've realized the benefits, it makes it much easier to just not go to the bad stuff.
1: Love it, absolutely wonderful. What a powerful message for this morning. Truly appreciate you joining us this morning, Ivor. Keep up the phenomenal work. This is Ivor Cummings, everybody. He is the Fat Emperor, and he has very successfully continues to do, separating fact from fiction about our food and about our health. We will be right back.
0: With his expert analysis and opinion. This is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea.
3: For decades, I've been calling out the national and various state GOP committees for not closing open Republican primaries to non-Republican voters. It just makes sense. When they played in the Super Bowl, the New England Patriots weren't allowed an opportunity to determine who the New York Giants' starting quarterback would be. And Democrat and various leftist voters shouldn't be able to influence who the Republican nominee for president or any office should be. Luckily, we have someone with the courage of her convictions to stand up and say this is wrong and it needs to stop. Merrimack County GOP Chairwoman Karen Testerman filed court together with some new hampshire republican voters today asking the court to enjoin the counting of undeclared voter and same-day registrant voter ballots until it can be determined whether they can legitimately participate in the republican primary kudos to chairwoman testerman and let's hope that the federal court does the right thing and protects the new hampshire gop's first amendment right to freedom of association From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio.
2: Many pollution sources can affect the air you breathe, from power plants and vehicles to dust and wildfires. Knowing more about local air quality can help you protect your health. If you're thinking about buying an air sensor, EPA has a series of videos to help you get the most out of it. Learn how EPA collects and uses regulatory data, how EPA communicates health messaging, and how to interpret the readings from your sensor. Visit epa.gov slash air dash sensor dash
0: You're listening to Sonya Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. TNT.
1: Hello there. I am delighted to be joined by Russell Quirk. Russell is, well, he's many things. He's a co-founder of Proper PR. He's a political commentator for TV and radio. He's a newspaper reviewer. He's a presenter. And he is, most importantly this morning, a property expert. Hello there, Russell. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sonia Poulton show. Yes, hey, Sonia,
5: thanks for that wonderful introduction. I'm flattered. Thank you.
1: Well, it's all true, isn't it? Unless unless somebody's well, been making it up. I think it's all true. I think it's all true. Mostly. Now, yeah. <laughs> now, you came to our attention this week because you had uh, noted that a member of the British um, Parliament of the Shadow, the Shadow Housing Minister, Matthew Pennecock for Labour, had made some very elitist, snobbery-type comments where he was saying that estate agents should have A-levels. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, this really did incense me yesterday. So I've been in the property industry for about 25 years, Um, estate agency in the UK, I have to be honest, it doesn't come with the best reputation. Uh, And a lot of that is exaggerated actually by, you know, media and so on. But uh, the majority of UK estate agents are very, very hard working people with lots and lots of integrity that actually don't get paid very much. So In other territories, so the likes of the US and Australia and Europe, fees are much higher. Uh, Estate agents tend to be kind of self-employed and they take a big, big share of the commission. So it's not unusual to see, we've probably all seen the shows, right? You know, million dollar listing, you know, where these people are earning hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. In the UK, that's not the case. However, um, whilst we don't have licensing in the UK, and I am actually a fan of licensing for estate agents in Britain, This announcement yesterday by Matthew Pennycook, who is um, someone that no one's ever heard of, frankly, uh, but happens to be one of Labour's shadow housing ministers, decided in his wisdom to stick his hand up and say, hey, I know how we fix the reputational issue in UK estate agency. Let's make everybody have an A-level. Now, that is bonkers ridiculous lunacy on the basis that as if someone with an a-level no disrespect to all the a-level holders out there as if someone with an a-level somehow that automatically gives them uh, a huge dollop of integrity. You know, having an A-level in haberdashery or woodwork doesn't make you a better estate agent and it doesn't make you a better person. Now, the really fascinating thing for me, Sonia, was when I looked into how many MPs have qualifications, a huge 86% of British members of Parliament have a degree. Mm. How has Parliament fared reputationally in Britain over the last 10 years or so? Ooh. I would argue not very well so when it comes to reputation and shame and integrity and um, clearly qualifications in parliament in this country uh, don't make an iota of difference to ensuring that our political overseers are serving us better and in a more honest
1: way absolutely and of course it's a throwaway comment in many respects we can just say oh that's just ridiculous you know just nonsense What it does is it gives us an insight into the elitist mindset of members of parliament. And I'd just like to say in the comments, if you have any housing questions, Russell is very kindly going to answer some housing questions. If you have any available, I certainly have a pile for him. But yeah, I think what it does, Russell, is it gives us an insight, doesn't it, into this snobbery, this idea. And for many reasons, I come from a good working class background. I did eventually get A-levels and a degree, but that was later in life. But it's not always available to people, is it? This, you know, to be able to... have to access A-levels. And some people don't function well on sort of rudimentary exam taking, but they they can be brilliant in other areas. So it really shows us how out of touch in some respects the political class is, doesn't it?
5: Yeah, and the way that MPs now are selected, and, and whether it be the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, the Lib Dems or whatever, the way that these politicians are selected, um, it, it is you know a, a kind of nudge and a wink. Uh, it is very much kind of nepotism, cronyism, and so on. Um, it certainly, from what I can see, isn't based on intellect or ability within um, within the Houses of Parliament in Westminster here. So, yeah, how um, how they think that this is the remedy is beyond me. And yes, it does show how out of touch politicians are and, and actually in, in the UK right now, we we have an absolute travesty of, poli- of a political crisis, not just across silly housing announcements where property and housing is used as a political football in the run up to an election, which clearly is what's happening here, um, but across all departments and all divisions, we can see that from Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt downwards, they have absolutely no connection with the vast majority of the British public whatsoever. you know, when it comes to conservatism, if you like, you know, and we are supposed to be led here by a conservative government, you know, when it comes to the principles of conservatism, in my opinion, you know, you've got a conservative government that has been weak on crime, awful on the economy, has raised taxes and opened the floodgates to lots and lots of illegal immigrants. Now, That's the opposite of conservatism. So when it comes to electing a conservative government and getting what you expect to get as a conservative voter, well, look, I'm afraid that we've all been sorely disappointed in it does speak to your point. What on earth are these politicians for if they don't represent us accurately in terms of doing what we want them to do as voters when we elect them?
1: Well, I think you asked your own question in many respects, because as you so rightly said, they always bring up the issue of housing, don't they, in a run up to an election, because they know it's one of those things that the British public want to know about. And so I ask you, Russell, as somebody who has 25 years of experience in this area, we do have a housing crisis, don't we? How would you, if we made you Prime Minister with actual power, as opposed to just being, you know, somebody that we see like a Rishi Sunak, but somebody with actual power, how would you go about solving our housing crisis? crisis where we plainly do not have enough properties for the amount of people we have.
5: Yeah, so look, yeah, you're right. We have a growing population here in Britain. So you know, about a million plus uh, additional people in Britain as a consequence of people living longer and you know positive net in immigration and so on. So we. We have a shortage of housing that's about a hundred thousand homes short every year here. So typically about two hundred thousand homes are built in Britain, but we need about three hundred thousand to cater for that increasing population. Um and that deficit of course accumulates, you know, it, it compounds over a period of time. I think the first thing that we need to do in terms of solution is actually, and this is gonna sound glib, but I mean this with a straight face, we need to remove politicians from the housing process as much as we possibly can. They they are imbeciles. I mean, they have absolutely no clue about the housing market whatsoever. What would I do, Sonia? I would set up a, a body that would be publicly owned, but run by a board of directors that would be a combination of public sector stakeholders, politicians, and so on, but predominantly the executive team would be experienced property people. So ex-house builders, the ex-CEO of Persimmon, the ex-Chief Financial Officer of Barrett Homes, whoever. And and I would give them a mandate based on a 10-year strategy whereby we we would identify which houses of which 10 years need to be built in which parts of Britain We would then go to local authorities that have lots and lots of spare brownfield land. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of hectares of publicly owned land, either through government, Ministry of Defence, NHS, uh, rail companies, local authorities. And I would ensure that we take that land and build the right homes at the right tenure in the right places. And we would report back as a board to the public, uh, to the politicians, but we would be allowed, when I say we, I'd like to be part of it, clearly, Um, but that board, that quango, if you want to call it that, would be left alone in an unadulterated way to get on with the job of delivering its target of whatever that target ends up having to be—three, probably three hundred and fifty thousand homes. But it would be targeted, but done without the interference and the meddling of these petty politicians that, frankly, are standing in the way of the delivery of adequate housing in this country.
1: I mean, let's put you in charge of that. Let's get rid of the politicians. But I can't help but notice, as indeed do some of our commentators, that you have a a life-size of Margaret Thatcher in the background. Clearly, obviously, she was at at the forefront of the whole right-to-buy scheme, which is – Beset, I do understand both sides of it. It is so important for some people to be able to have been able to have purchased the home that they've lived in their entire life and have some right to. But of course, what's happened is they've never replenished the housing stock. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that is clearly a problem, right? Because we do have a problem with social housing. We don't have enough affordable housing available to us. Would you agree with that, Russell?
5: yeah I, I would so i think right to buy which my my friend over my shoulder here uh, introduced almost immediately she was first elected in 1979 right to buy i think was a fantastic and aspirational measure to allow people to buy their council house at a discount and actually not only has that Fueled appreciation of property values in a, in a good way in terms of people having equity in their homes ever since, but it's actually allowed that equity be that equity to be released and for that to be put into businesses and uh, into the wider economy. So I think that was a great thing. But yes, you're right. What should have happened? There should have been a mandate whereby every home that was sold had to be replaced. Now. This current government did talk about ensuring that, albeit many, many years after Maggie Thatcher's uh, introduction, that they would ensure that that would be the case. But of course, they announce it. And then when you look back two or three years later to see if they've actually done it, they haven't. It's not that difficult to do. you know. And, and if actually we can retrain and educate local authorities to build council houses again, perhaps, rather than leaving it to these independent housing associations, who, who frankly have very, very highly paid chief executives that seem to like building houses to sell for profit as much as they do providing social housing. But if we moved them out of the way and gave the mandate to councils to build houses to replace those right to buy sales, whereby then there was an element of political accountability where those councils are concerned. In other words, if you say that you're going to build X amount of council houses a year as a local authority and you don't, well then you might lose power. You might lose office as an administration as a consequence of that failure. Something that should happen to Steve Khan in London, by the way, a London mayor who's failed to deliver on 75% of the homes that he pledged to build. So yes, um it is a failing. It can be fixed. Right to buy isn't the problem. As you rightly identify, the problem was not replacing the stock that was sold.
1: Right. So uh, let me read you some of these comments. Holly said, the property market is a false economy. Current hikes are not sustainable. Just wait for the webuyanyhouse.com. That is concerning, isn't it? I mean, people are struggling, aren't they? Some people are having to do two, three jobs just to keep a roof over their head, Russell. I mean, how can we tackle this? I mean, how can we begin to penetrate it? And another comment just to say from Raycan says, housing crisis predated mass illegal um, migration. How can they ever keep up? And so the the fact is, we, we didn't even start off with enough without even introducing people into the country, right?
5: Yeah, no, no, I I agree with that. Look, we we haven't built enough homes in Britain since the days of the Macmillan government in the 1950s. You know, when when actually Harold Macmillan managed to get councils building, and we built something like three hundred and something thousand homes back then. Um, so yeah, look, the, 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 I'm certainly not saying that the solution here is to cancel immigration. I'm I'm pro-controlled immigration. I think immigration is. Uh, one of the backbones of a great britain frankly um but we should control it and i suppose look, that's that's a slightly different debate um so and, and the facts are there's only about six percent of britain is currently covered by residential properties only six percent so the fallacy that britain doesn't have enough room it is a fallacy it's political ineptitude it's this lack of ability of politicians to translate their headlines down to actual ability now when it comes to affordability i, I, I i'm sorry i forgot the, the the commentator's name the first uh comment that you, you i think out. it was holly um, holly sorry holly holly i'm afraid you're wrong Right. When it comes to house prices being unsustainable, people have been saying that since the end of the Second World War, when house prices started to increase as a consequence of uh, you know money going into the economy to try and recover from the economic woes of the Second World War. So you know, we are in a position now where, yes, house prices obviously are higher. Interest rates now are higher than they were, let's say, two years ago when they were artificially low at 0.1%. You know, trying to trying to get hold of a mortgage and succeeding at a bank rate of, or a, a fixed rate, let's say, of less than 2% was not normal. That was artificial. Now, where fixed rate mortgages are sitting just under 4% for a three to five year fixed rate mortgage, that is still low in historic terms i mean i'm old enough to remember the days of 10 12 15% interest rates now as a consequence of that as a consequence of uh, wage growth which we've certainly seen uh, outpacing house price growth over the last couple of years the the proof of the fact that housing is affordable is the fact that we still see about a million housing transactions every year even in 2023, which was challenged economically significantly, we st- we will still see just under that. So it's not true to say that people can't buy. It's not true to say that first-time buyers can't afford to get on the first rung of the property ladder. Two years ago, there were 440,000 first-time buyers in Britain. That's a record. Last year, a time when transactions dropped by about 20%, there was still 53% of all home purchases were to first-time buyers. So I, I know the, the headlines are convenient in the, you know, this housing market is overheated and it's out of control and no one can afford to buy a home. The statistics, the data, I'm afraid, says that that is not correct.
1: Mm, interesting. Jethro says paying a lifetime of wages for a house is not normal. I have to agree with that to a certain degree. Obviously, mortgage, when you break it down, is death grip. And, uh, but so there are obviously issues. There are issues about building on greenbelt land because we want to keep are green as well. That is a problem, right? And so it it, it seems to me that there isn't enough joined up thinking that is actually taking place between developers, between government, between people's needs. And I wonder whether this is deliberate confusion that is taking place and who might be able to benefit from that. But all I do know is that we have not improved our lot, as you say, essentially, for generations. And that's absolutely insane. It's not that we don't have the intelligence or the abilities to do so
5: the uh, the cynics the conspiracy theorists might say that it's contrived because of course one of the largest donors to the conservative party are house builders uh, it's in their interest to ensure that they can build what they want where they want and that they can turn the tap on and off as the cyclicality of the economy dictates and of course if you're a house builder that owns a load of land already with planning permissions clearly you're going to you're going to want to sell those properties at 100% of value rather than when the market drops a little as it did slightly in 2023, taking 97% of value. So there, there, there is definitely some merit to that cynicism, I guess. Um, but again, I go back to the point, we, we cannot allow politicians to be the ones controlling uh the house building policy element and uh, on a day-to-day basis where actually the only people that are then converting that into actual bricks and mortar being laid are those 10 House builders, but but you're, you're, again, your your first commenter there with regard to how can it be right that you have to spend a lifetime's wages on a property? Well, a that's not true. I mean, no one's spending their entire wages on property. If you rent, typically you're spending thirty to forty percent of your monthly wages on rental. Um, if you're uh, a mortgage holder, you're spending about thirty percent of your on, and this is averages, right? In in, in Britain, this is the average: thirty percent of your wages, your salary, on a mortgage. I mean living somewhere anywhere in the world is going to cost money and not just in terms of rent and mortgage but utilities and so on of course
1: and i have to stop you there one one more quick
5: point No, we're going to go out.
1: I don't want you to be cut off cold, Russell. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I truly appreciate it. Clearly, this is a man with plenty to say. I want to say thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Sonia Poulton Show. Thank you to our wonderful commentators. Thank you to Russell Quirk. Thank you to Ivor Cummings. Coming up next is the Abby Abby Roberts Show. Have a wonderful Wednesday. Take excellent care of yourself. See you tomorrow. A, A wonderful Tuesday even.